from our my commitment to you from seven to eight. So we're going to make sure we kind of snap back a little bit here. And all right, praise the Lord. Let's just pray. Father, thank you. We, we're always so thankful, Father God. Before everything else, we praise your name, God. We we declare we appreciate everything you've done for us, everything that you are doing and what you will do. God, thank you that we are saved, that we're bought by the blood of heaven's lamb. Thank you that we stand in right standing with you, Father, in the spirit, and that, Father God, we are working that salvation that is an inward work toward the outward nature, Father, of our soul and our in it, and what one day is our hope and, and knowledge that we'll have that redemption in our body as well, Father. Thank you most importantly for Jesus, the bread of life, for the light of the life of man. We invite the light. We invite the light. Holy Spirit, you're the teacher, and we thank you that you would uh, just bring diverse revelation, that you would bring anointing to ears and to eyes to be able to hear and to see, uh, oh God, your truths tonight. Thank you for streams of revelation tonight. In the name of Jesus, and all glory and honor be unto you. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you all for coming out. You will be blessed. Hallelujah. As I will be. As we endeavor to uh, cover a little bit deeper something that we t- talked about <clears throat> a, a couple Sundays ago with respect to the tabernacle. And so what I'm going to endeavor to do, and I am not going to give you an exposition on this subject. I'm, it's just it's not going to happen. But I'm going to give you some concepts because the Holy Spirit has been stirring and stirring and stirring the waters of my heart along these lines. And I've been listening and I've been d- digging into the Word of God. And the Holy Ghost can bring all kinds of things out in season and out of season for these things. But I feel like it's in season. And we're going to talk about restoring David's tabernacle. We're going to talk about restoring David's tabernacle. This is not a new subject. It's not, you know, it's not, I'm not going to be reinventing the wheel here. We've got a lot of really good teaching out there about this. Some good and some not so good. So we've got to be very, you know, listen to our hearts and follow the Holy Spirit in this. But I want to develop a little bit further and a little bit deeper along the lines of David's tabernacle. And you'll recall about two, two, about three weeks ago, y'all, how many of y'all heard the teaching there on Sunday morning with some preaching mixed in about God's living tabernacle, us? And I was talking about we are the tabernacle, you know, we're the ark. We carry the presence of the living God inside of us. And we were the, the, the desired home of the presence of God to begin with. Not, not something made by human hands, not a tabernacle or an ark, but, but, but our body. The, the word says that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Okay, well, what's the earthen vessel here? Well, it's the it's our body. I mean, we contain the presence of the living God because he lives in us. Amen? Does anybody have the living God inside of them tonight? Yes. yes. Hallelujah. So um, we're going to talk about a little bit about the concepts of restoring David's tabernacle. And so I want to just, we're, I don't even know if we'll go the whole time tonight. We'll just have to see how the Holy Spirit leads. I've got quite a bit here to deliver, but I don't want to just throw so much out and get so far into this thing that before we had time to kind of let it stew a little bit. We need to let some things kind of stew a little bit and spend some time in meditating on some of these things we're going to talk about. Thank you, Holy Spirit. So David's tabernacle, what was David's tabernacle? Well, we I, I, I uh, conveyed to you all several weeks back or about three weeks ago that it, just a little bit of an, of the, kind of the, you know, the cusp of what David's tabernacle was. But the bottom line is, is that it resulted from a desire in David's heart to be in the presence of God and to have his presence restored among the people. Okay? So if you want to really define and distill what David's tabernacle was all about, why it even came into being, why we see it in the scripture and, and, and why it came about. It was because of these, of this, this one thing. God or David wanted and desired above all else the presence of the living God to be in the midst, in his midst and in the midst of the people. That was it because guess what? It had been lost. 
It had been lost to the people. And so David desired this more than anything. And you know, we see one of his Psalms, this one thing that I ask, this one thing that I seek, that I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what David said, right? And we see, uh, and we're going to dive into this, so let me get ahead, Holy Ghost, help me out here. So before I step on further here to kind of iterate a little bit about the concepts of David in this, I want to just say one thing. The church leadership needs to obtain this same vision. Above all else, like David, we need to seek above all things and obtain a vision for the presence of the living God in our midst and our residing or abiding in that presence to, to a greater and greater degree, from glory to glory, as we endeavor and walk with the living God. Amen? Amen. That's what we in church leadership, above all else, and I think we hear our pastors say that over and over and over again, that one of the greatest things in terms of a goal for this church is to see the presence of God manifest, is to seek that presence stronger and stronger and ha- and do what it takes to to see the presence of God manifest quicker and stronger in our midst so we need to obtain the same div- same vision that David had we need to do everything to ensure the presence of God isn't under wraps his presence his essence his anointing his character everything about our living God okay and his tangible Power with us. We can't do anything to keep, we need to make everything, uh, uh, make sure that there's nothing that is keeping that under wraps. We need to make sure that it's not being controlled. We need to make sure that it isn't being manipulated by our desires, by our agendas, by our policies, by our methods, by our SOP. Amen or oh me? That absolutely is the case. And we're going to see this brought out very, very uh, clearly as we get through this lesson here tonight. So I would say as a charge, before we get going here, we need to, to, to just basically set, if you will, a context for what we're going to discuss in terms of restoring some of the concept of restoring David's tabernacle. Uh, we need to set the context from a perspective of church leadership. I'm talking about people that move and shake in, ter- in terms of leadership roles in this church and, and, and as leadership in your own home. You're a leader. You're, you know, men, you're priests of your home. This needs to be above all else a vision, I mean, central and paramount to your vision, the presence of the living God in your midst. And you're abiding in that presence. That's what David had. I mean, that was his vision. That was his purpose in, in why the David's tabernacle was even born, was brought into being. So, but first of all, before we talk about the tabernacle, and we talk a little bit here about this vision, but what was it about David? That's a question we need to maybe spend a little time and think about. Why did God allow David to implement a tabernacle under the old covenant, mind you. Now, we're not talking about David operating under some new set of regulations or laws. He was still under the same old covenant and the same um, requirements that Moses operated under. He was not operating under a different covenant. He was not operating under a different potential or framework or context for him to take artistic license if you will with the with with manifesting and abiding in the manifesting the presence of God or abiding the presence of in the presence of God he couldn't he wasn't in a place where he could just take license so what was it about David that God allowed him to do what he did okay why did God allow David to implement a tabernacle under the old covenant that was not based on the mosaic design When you look at the the mosaic design of the tabernacle, you don't see the same design in David's tabernacle. He didn't implement the tabernacle with all this furniture and all these elements and things that God gave an exacting uh, design based on a copy and replica. It was just a replica of what is actually in heaven, even as we sit here now. About all the instruments and the furniture and the different things. He told Moses to the exacting degree and detail how to build all of those things, right? 
And so we see that borne out in terms of the way Moses and all the leaders and the craftsmen and things that were, that were anointed, people that were anointed and gifted to be able to bring those things and leverage those designs into a manifest physical reality, how that happened, you know, with Mo, under Moses. Okay? But the thing is, with David's tabernacle, it was different. You know, again, David's not operating under a different set of regulations. He's not operating under a different framework with God, okay, in covenant. So why is it, what is it about David that God allowed him to, 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 to develop this tabernacle design that was different? Cause see, here's the, here's the central thing about the Mosaic tabernacle is that the order and the, the essence of of the efforts that took place in that tabernacle were animal sacrifice. The way that the priests, the way that the ministers ministered before the Lord on behalf of the people, the way that they accomplished the things in terms of ministry before God was all, every single bit of it, through animal sacrifice. And I'm telling you, I'm not just talking about one animal. I'm not just talking about two animals. I'm not just talking about 100 animals or 200 or 1,000 or 2,000. I'm talking about tens of thousands of animals that would be sacrificed. I'm talking about blood that the police, the priest could literally wade in to some degree at times. There's that much sacrifice taking place. You know, and you know, I, there's a lot to go on that and I cannot go down the rabbit trail of that. But the bottom line is, that seems so weird, doesn't it, when you think about God? Because God is love. God is mercy. He delights in mercy over sacrifice. Okay? But yet you look at that picture and it's hard to reconcile from a soulless perspective. But you have to understand about what blood does, what blood means from a spiritual perspective. You have to understand that every animal's life that was being sacrificed, that was being uh, represented the, the innocence of life that would be in a prophetic symbolism, an IOU from God to God through man's obedience to, to demand the blood of the real lamb of God who would come one day and his name was Jesus. And when his blood was sacrificed, it was once and for all offered on the mercy seat and still sits there today and speaks your name out, Robert. Speaks your name out, Ken. Speaks your name out. Every single name here constantly saying that, uh, saying mercy, saying righteousness, saying relationship. Amen? Okay, well, we kind of went down the trail for just a second there. Let's come back. Okay. So it was that, you know, the Mosaic tabernacle was after the order of animal sacrifice. That's, that was the, that was its order. That was its essence in terms of the operation before God and the presence of God was to come by way of animal sacrifice. Please don't forget that. Hang on to that. Okay. File that in the back of your mind for now. So. What, it, what was it about David? Well, let's just start out here and think a little bit about David. David, first and foremost, here's the issue. He was a man after God's own heart. Everyone's heard that before. Let me give you scripture reference for that so you know that I'm not just giving you some religious, uh, 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 iterating some re- nice religious slogan. It's actual scripture, 1 Samuel 13, 14. It says, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Talking, he's talking, this is Samuel talking to Paul, to Saul here. And appointed him ruler over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And so who is the, who was the next person after Saul? It was David. You, you bet. And what does it say about David? He has sought, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. There's the scriptural reference, 1 Samuel 13, 14. Okay, but what does this really mean? So we see that really this is the reason why God allowed David in a revelation. We're going we're gonna to see that really with respect to David's tabernacle, there is some serious prophetic implications in, in revelation here. I mean, some serious foreshadowing of what we get to operate and are privileged to operate in and should be operating in right now. 
The groundwork has been laid for the reality of David's tabernacle to be walked in and lived out now. Okay. So what does this really mean? David is a man after his own heart. Well, I'm just going to give you five things that the Holy Ghost gave to me about as quick as I could get down through my keyboard. I mean, just bang, bang, bang. Here they are. The first thing is, is that he was first a shepherd. Does that sound like anybody that we know? Yeah, Jesus. And you know, the thing about him being a shepherd is, is that this is the issue with David and the issue that God saw with David is that he had to be a man that was brought in from the field in order to be anointed king. He wasn't a man seeking promotion. He wasn't a man looking for the next hit and the next way that he could step to some other uh, uh, realm of glory from a physical perspective. He was tending and doing his business. The business that he was, he was told to do, that he, that was put upon him to do, and he did it well. And he did it so well, in fact, that it didn't make any difference whether there was a prophet coming to his daddy's house. It didn't make any difference what was going on. Guess what? He had business to take care of. And it's called tending the sheep. And I've got to say, and I've heard this, this came, I just heard this from Perry Stone, so I'm not, I'm gonna give glory where glory's due here, credit where credit's due here. But the bottom line is, is I like this. Because it is like our, our great, the great shepherd, Jesus. God is about people that take care of business. Ahead of glory. Ahead of their own promotion. He's about people that work. He's about people that have an ethic. We were just talking about that. He's about people that have a commitment to to fulfill the things they, they commit themselves to do. David was a committed man. David was a man about work. He was a man about business. He was a man who was a shepherd first before anything else. That's like someone else I know, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We're talking about issues of, of character as to why David was a man after God's own heart. The second thing the Holy Ghost gives me. He was a penitent man. I, I gotta tell you the one character uh, I would say that really just shines, and I've taught this so many times to the young adults and the youth and the people and to my own kids. Is that with respect to David, when you say that he's a man after his own heart, the first thing that comes to my mind ahead of all others is this issue. He was very quick to repent. I mean, whenever he, and he committed some gross atrocities. You know, when you talk about what he did with Bathsheba and then having her husband murdered and the lies that were told and propagated through all that. And I mean, just terrible things. And he ends up losing his son over it. And I mean, it's just, it's just horrible, some of the, the heinous things that he committed. But I gotta tell you, whenever he was confronted with his sin, he, he was not, he didn't go off charging in rebellion and, and who cares. He immediately hit his knees and turned his face to God and sought his mercy. We see that over and over and over again in David's life. He was a penitent man. He was quick to repent after mistakes. The third thing, David was an honorable man. And I have taught a whole series, I taught a whole series to the youth on honor, and it all centered around David. I would say there's so many honorable men and women in the, in the Bible, but David is really tough to, to eclipse. He was a man of, of tremendous honor. When I look at David's life and how he treated Saul, how he respected God's anointed, how he did not disdain and talk against and even had people killed because they would talk against the king, even though the king was dead wrong. And not only dead wrong, but leading the people down a path away from God. But yet David would not raise his voice in in a curse or insult against the, the anointed of God. David would not, even when he had every right in the physical Every right from, from a justice perspective to even take the life of Saul who attempted his life multiple times. He would not do it. And you all remember the wonderful story where he cuts off the hem of, of Saul's garment and he had an opportunity. He could have slayed him and he did not do it. This is after David had run from Saul because he'd had a spear thrown at him 
Not once, but a couple times. I'm not sure where that, where that place in the story was, but we know that Saul intended, had that demon rise up and come against David, you know, multiple times. And he had to flee for his life. And David could have taken his life and would have been justified, really, from a physical perspective. Didn't do it. Didn't do it. We know that David, this is the man who, when he, he, he abs- actually captained people that are, are, are called in the Bible the mighty men of, of valor, mighty men of God, that did great exploits under the anointing of God that would come upon them. To slay hundreds and hundreds of people by one man's hands. Well, that's not physical strength. That's the strength that God would provide upon somebody. And these were mighty men. And David was the captain of many of those mighty men. And it said that there was one point in time, and it just makes me want to cry. When I think about the reality of honor, and I consider the story when David was in a place, and he made a statement around those men that how he longed for the water that he was able to drink back in his, his former city that was now under enemy rule. And when he said that, his mighty men respected and honored and revered David so much, they risked their lives and went to that city and literally took a a flask of water from that well and brought it back to David and said, Here, O king, here, O master, here, O captain, if you will, take this water and refresh yourself with it. You asked for it. David was such an honorable man, he could not drink that water. Because that water represented a sacrifice of those men's honor and esteem for him and really who he stood for. And that was to, the honor and esteem he had in his life of God ahead of his own self that, he, that gave, them, gave them the ability to do the exploits that they did. That he took that water and he poured it out as a drink offering and didn't take one drop of it. I got to tell you, that's honor. That is an honorable man. That, I mean, he honored those men that risked their lives for that. And a lot of people, when you would read that, if you didn't understand the concepts here that we're talking about from an honor perspective and those cultures and things that our culture doesn't have a lot, a lot of relationship to, you would look at that story and think, dear God, what a stupid thing to do to take that water. Those men risked their lives and he's taking that water and pouring it out. But yet the thing was, is it was a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice unto God that, that represented those men's lives who honored him. And he was turning around and taking that honor up to heaven. Reflecting it, deflecting it, conveying it to the one who does get the honor, and that's God above all else. That is honor. David was an honorable man. The fourth thing, he was fearless. David was fearless. We're talking about a man after God's own heart, the characters that define that or that, that, that exhibit that. He was fearless. Needless, need I say more, giant. Need I say more? But yet we see him over and over and over and over again, the exploits he did against the Philistines and other people that would rise up against the, the people of God and the things that he did. David was fearless. And the fifth and final thing that the Holy Spirit gave me was that he was a worshiper. He was a worshiper. Above all else, David desired the presence of the living God. He desired to dwell in it. He desired to dwell in it. Did you know that he wrote over about 80 of the songs that are, that are chronicled in the Psalms? He played an anointed harp, and in fact, the anointing was so strong upon his harp playing, not his singing, but upon his the musical instrument that literally could drive demons out of people, and it did Saul. It would stay the demonic uh, uh, manifestations. It would it would usher the anointing in. And let me just stop for a moment and just say that we don't understand this concept. You know, we understand, you know, singing, we understand hymns, and we understand things. But I gotta tell you, there are people that are anointed to play their instrument, and God brings anointing and voicings through those instruments as they yield their members unto the talent, you know, and their talents that God has put inside of them. That if we would just let down the outer view, you know, our, our quick tendency to only look at one aspect of anointing in terms of music, we would, it would open up a whole new realm because I could, I tell you what, I have received prophetic utterance as a result of an instrument's voice.
not words. And the voice of the Holy Ghost playing through an anointed hand in through the instrument. I have received peace in my soul from that. I have received joy, an anointing of joy and the oil of gladness through that. And I would just like to mark, you know, this as a, you know, with a special note. Let's open and change our perspective a little bit and expect the hand of God through every voice that he's given a talent for. Whether it's a voice, a vocal, you know, the, of course, yes, the, the human voice is the strongest. But what about the instruments? You know, Phil Driscoll, uh, some people probably know him. Some people probably don't. The younger folks probably don't. That man, if you want to know about an anointing through an instrument, that man is probably one of the strongest anointings through an instrument I've ever experienced. I've had experiences when I went to a concert of his when I was a teenager that literally I became so overcome by the presence of the living God, they had to carry me out of that building. And it was a public, I can't even remember whether it was the Civic Center Music Hall or whatever it was up there in Oklahoma City. They literally had to carry me out, and I was so overcome, I could not make my limbs work. I could not understand where I was at or what was going on because the anointing was moving through me. So, And that all became because of the voice of the living God through that man's instrument. Okay, that's, let's get off, let's come back from that rabbit trail. Okay, so he was a worshiper. David was a worshiper. I would say above all else, that was David's heart. That was one of the main reasons that God, that David was a man after God's heart. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So now, before we go on and, and talk about David's tabernacle, let's, let's, let's review a little bit of the events leading up to it because there's a lot to be learned here. There's a lot to review and to understand, to, to, to good, get a good foundation. And so what we're going to talk about is over in the first Samuel. Okay, the first several chapters of First Samuel, I would ask you all as homework to go and read those first several chapters, particularly the chapters up through one through five. Give you a good framework. I'm not going to cover all of this. I'm going to cover some aspects of the scriptures, but I want you to know that what I'm saying is the, is the word of God. It's, that's most important. You confirm it for yourself. So you go and read these chapters. There's a lot in here and the Holy Ghost will speak to you about this as you seek, uh, to get understanding and seek to, uh, get enlightenment through this. So the first several chapters, particularly one through five, chapters one through five in first Samuel. But we see the story of Eli and his sons, particularly as it begins in, ver- in chapter 2. And we have to understand something. Eli was the, and his sons were priests. I'm talking about men that were after the order that allowed them to, first of all, be priests. And then secondly, they were anointed as priests and actually were able, by the Lord's hand coming upon them, to conduct their priestly duties under that anointing. I'm talking about Eli, Phineas, and Hophni, Eli and his two sons. Eli was the high priest. Okay, so he was the one that was really in charge of the priesthood, if you will. He would have been the boss. He would have been the one that where the buck stops here as far as the goings-on in the tabernacle, as far as the goings-on in the temple, you know, around the presence of the living God, around the ark. He was the one that should be hearing from the Lord above all else. And should be uh, be able to to be clear in that hearing, and in the obedience in order to stand before men and God. That's Eli I'm talking about. And it, and you can see that in verse 12 of chapter 2, it says that Eli's sons, though, were wicked men. And I'm talking about priests of the living God, anointed by His hand to function in that office. And we see in verse 12 that the Bible characterizes them as wicked men. And how is it that they're wicked? Here it is, because there's a semicolon after that in punctuation, which means that the following is, is going to provide further explanation of what we just said in that phrase. That's the way I look at semicolons. I'm going to give you further explanation that relates to this. How is it they're wicked? They had no regard for the Lord. And if I would characterize that, even simply, it means they didn't esteem the Lord's purpose in what they were doing. They didn't value it above all else. 
but yet they functioned as priests, no, uh, no less. In verse 29, it talks about how Eli, here's Eli's problem though, the high priest, the father. In verse 29, it says that Eli honored his sons more than God. You mean, Greg, that, that you could be a minister of the living God, you know, having been born again, even filled with his spirit, anointed to do things, even in the front of house ministry capacity, and you can honor other things before God? Yes. Yes. And it's, it's ha- it happened with Eli, and it still happens today. <laughs> you know, sad to say. In verse 30, God rebukes him and declares a truth for all to note. The truth that rings through the ages. For them that honor me, I will honor. This is the voice of the living God speaking through someone who came to speak prophetically to Eli. For those that honor me, I will honor. Who's I there? God. Do you mean that God can honor a person? Oh, most certainly. Most certainly. And if, and he don't, he didn't, he didn't intend just to honor Jesus. And we see that time and time again. This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. I mean, he needs, didn't he confirm it again, you know, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then there was, you know, when he got baptized. I mean, there, he wasn't just Jesus though that God destines to honor. He wants to honor his people. That are committed and remain true to him and honor him. But here's the, here's the, uh, here's the rub. Them that honor me, I will honor. Them that respect my wishes, I'm gonna put it in Greg's terms. Them that respect me more than all else, I will respect. And they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. They that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And did the word despise there really means to just uh, the same as it says at the end, it means to just lightly esteem. You don't hold something in a in a high regard. You hold it in a regard that's equivalent to some uh, quite a few other things. It's not the highest regard that you have for something. You lightly esteem it, and God says you He will lightly esteem you. Man, that's a, that's a truth for the ages, folks. Truth for the ages. Verses 27 through 36, then we see a word of prophecy given to Eli about the demise of his household. So we see the word of the living God coming through someone here. And this man utters unto Eli under the unction of the Holy Ghost that came upon him from the outside. The hand of the Lord come upon someone to deliver the word to the high priest of all people. My goodness, folks. What is wrong with this picture? And it talks about the demise of Eli's household, and that's from his mouth, from that person's mouth is the words I just talk about, the truth for the ages. They that honor me, I will honor. They that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. The second part of this, as we're leading up to the establishment of David's tabernacle, we're talking about the story of Eli and his sons. We need to set that frame. The second part of this is glory departed. The glory departed. First Samuel chapter three now, as we enter in chapter three, we see in the very first verse of chapter three, right off the bat, something that is egregious, something that absolutely should shake you to the core. If you would stop and think about this applying to your life, about this applying to our church, about this applying to the body of Christ in general. Oh, dear Lord, let it not be so. As it was here in Eli's time. During this time, the time of dishonor and esteem of things more than God, the presence of God was already departed. The presence of God was already departed. And listen to what it says. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare and prophetic visions were not widespread. Folks, I've got to say, it's very easy. It's an, it's an easy litmus test. If the word of the Lord and revelation and so forth is rare in our lives and rare in our midst, folks, we need to take an honor test. We need to find out what we're esteeming. We need to see if we might be in a position of lighter esteem of the things of God over other things. Because we see that when that pervades, 
that in those days, the word of the Lord is rare. In those days, the prophetic visions were not widespread. That is a terrible state to be in. I don't know about you. I don't want that in my life. Oh, God forbid that. We see that even the physical symbol of the presence of God, though, the very ark, didn't really matter. Because the verse that proceeds there, that verse we just quoted says that the word of God wasn't hardly there. The prophetic visions weren't widespread. Yet the, the very symbol of the presence of the living God, which was the ark, was still in the camp. What is that saying? That says that that light esteem and dishonor of the very presence of the living God makes its power null and void in your presence. My goodness. I'm talking about the Ark of the Covenant was present right there. I'm talking about the mercy seat and the cherub that, cherubim that were around that, that the blood would be sprinkled on the east side of year after year after year as a place of atonement and IOUs for generations that would lead up into a demand for the Jesus blood one day was right there in the very midst of them. And yet the word of God was rare and the prophetic word was not widespread. Why? Because they dishonored God. Because the leaders, in particular, lightly esteemed God. It's no different today. No different. No different. They that honor me, I will honor. They that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. So i got to ask a question. It's kind of one of those Selah moments, right? Pause and think of that. Is there anything we esteem more than God? Is there anything that we ascribe a value to or, or a worth? Is there anything that demands you know, more of our person than God and in terms of attention? I'm not bringing a yoke of condemnation and guilt here, folks. I'm just bringing a simple question for us to ponder. Because we talk about how we want the presence of the living God. We talk about how we want to see his presence manifest in our midst. How we want to, but, but here's the deal, folks. Do we really want to abide in his presence? Do we really esteem his presence and the power thereof above all else? Because that's what it's going to take for us to see a manifestation of that desire. And I'm talking to myself. I'm not talking down to nobody here. I'm just being, happen to be an instrument that, that the Holy Ghost is bringing this truth through. And let me tell you, my ears are listening a lot quicker than yours are because they're closer to the sound source. Well, that's just the truth. Help me. Help me. Help us, God. Amen? Amen. Help us, God. God's presence and all that abound with it won't reside in a place that he is not honored above all else. Just won't reside there. The real issue, though, here's the real issue. Was it, was it Phineas and Hophni, you know, the two sons, was it their behavior that was the issue? Well, I mean, that's, there's a root there. There's no doubt about that. But the real issue is this, because the scripture is clear. The real issue is that Eli wouldn't honor God more than his own two sons and stop that behavior. And I've got to tell you, folks, that we in church leadership, Cornell, and if Pastor CJ was here, Ken, people that are in places of leadership where we're making decisions, guys, we, we've got to be about this. We, we can't even honor our family above what God has called, uh, called here. We can't honor and esteem our agendas or our hopes and desires above what God has called us to. Oh, God, help us to be true to this. It makes me fearful to think that I could be in a place that would, that would potentially sacrifice, you know, the best of God on behalf of the people of this church.
But the real issue, that was it. Eli would not honor God more than his two sons and stop that behavior. That was the issue. Verse 13 iterates that very clearly. I told them, and this is, this is the word of the Lord coming. I told him that I am going to judge his family forever because of the iniquity he knows about. His sons are defiling the sanctuary and he has not stopped them. There it is right there. There it is right there. So here's, here's some points I want to make on this rabbit trail for just a little bit. Here's the first point. We can stop it, whatever it is, because that scripture says he didn't stop it. And and then to me, that conveys the truth that if he would have stopped it, that this wouldn't be coming down upon him. So we can stop it, brothers and sisters, whatever it is. Even in God's time, folks, you know, those days that are set out. The days that are numbered before him of men, there's always hope. And how can I say that? Well, because I can say one little word. It's called repentance. And I've seen time after time after time again, and we talked about the character of David after a man's after his own heart. One of the principal characters is a penitent heart. One that's quick to turn to God whenever they realize that they're wrong, that they're, that they're opposed or going away from him. And I gotta ask you, I gotta make a statement here to really emphasize this. Ask Hezekiah. Ask him about what the big deal is about repentance. And for those of y'all that don't remember about Hezekiah, Hezekiah was a person, a king back in the day that he actually lived most of his life a godly man and doing things for God. But yet there came a time that he became afflicted with disease and the prophet came unto him. I think it was Isaiah came unto Hezekiah and said, you need to get your affairs in order because you're fixing to die. And it says that Hezekiah, oh my goodness. It says that one of the verses there, it says that he turned his face to the wall and he prayed. And the key word here is turn. He turned. That's what repentance is. Repentance is just an about face. It's a turn the other direction. And it says he prayed. And it says that he didn't just pray, folks. He poured out every part of his being in an entreaty unto God. That whatever fault, whatever thing might be bringing this upon him, would it be forgiven? Would God be merciful to him? I don't know what all he prayed. The scripture's not clear about everything he uttered. But he prayed hard, folks. I guarantee you that. He prayed hard. And he didn't even have the Holy Ghost inside of him. And we do. Who can lead us to pray out the will of God, right? Hallelujah. And listen to what happened. It says, I, and I don't know that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm having to make this up because it doesn't, the scripture's not clear. But I like to say before Isaiah gets out the door. <laughs> I don't know if it's a couple days later or whatever. But that's how my God is. My God is a God of mercy. He's a God that, that wants to, his mercies and character will triumph oh, any day over judgment. That men are so quick to ascribe to him. His mercies always triumph over judgment. His love endures unto all generations, what the word says. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love. And I tell you what, I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to tell God, even if I might have, you know, said something that wasn't 100% about something to do with him, one thing he's not going to say about me is, is you didn't represent me as a loving person. That you didn't represent me as a person whose mercy came to an end at some point in time. Amen? Man, my God is awesome. His mercies, his mercies are reckless. Hallelujah. I mean that in a respectful tone. God heard Hezekiah's prayer and gave him 15 more years. He told the prophet, you get back to that man and tell him I heard his prayers. 
And you tell him that I, what is it? They that honor me, I will honor. He honored Hezekiah. Did he not? He gave him 15 more years. And that, you know, to me, that gives me hope to let me know that even when the word of the Lord comes in a, in what appears to be a divine appointment and timing, that even that can be changed by the attitude of your heart. Do you all see that? Man, that would give you something to maybe jump up and dance a little jig about. Because you realize that, oh my goodness, I can literally change the heart of God based on my heart's position. And if I can do that for me, perhaps I can even do that for someone else. That's called intercession. That's called intercession. You know who did that? Abraham. And it says that God, that he, that he entreated to God on behalf of the people whom he had just told Abraham, Abraham step on out of the way because I'm fixing to wipe this lot out and start over with you. Abraham said, Oh no, God, you, you, you can't do that. God, I, I, I implore of you. I recall you to your word and what you've said about these people. I mean, you can, I don't know what all Abraham said. I can just think in my heart. I just go with my heart what he probably said to God. And what did God do? He had mercy on a man. But I gotta tell you, it's because of an intercessor. It's because of an intercessor. And do you know the greatest act of intercession that's ever taken place is what Jesus has and continues to do into this day as he sits before the living God, as the accuser comes before him and brings all these things against you and these charges against you. And the advocate is there interceding for us today. <laughs> Hallelujah. I mean, there, I mean, we can say all we want to and to make all the jokes about attorneys, but you ain't going to make no joke about the reality of that attorney. And a lot of, and like a lot of, uh, you know, the kingdom of darkness might look at the court of heaven and say the deck is stacked because the father's the judge. <laughs> but we know that it's not unfair, right? The devil had his chance and he blew it. You know, the issue with the devil was he wanted to exalt himself above God. He did the same thing that Eli did. He lightly esteemed God and esteemed his own agenda above God. Cost him, cost him, cost him. And it cost a third of the angelic force too, who sided with him, right? So this honor of God and esteem of God is a pretty big thing, isn't it? Pretty big thing. So in, in the fourth chapter of Samuel, <clears throat> my heart is just about to explode. The first, cha- the, or, or first Samuel, the fourth chapter, first Samuel, the fourth chapter, we see the loss of the ark. In verse two, Israel battles the Philistines and they suffer a big defeat. Please, please, will y'all read this? Please read this this week. Read all of this. I mean, not just these verses I'm telling you, but the whole, all these four, five chapters, first five chapters of first Samuel, at least. So Israel battles the Philistines. They suffer a defeat. And upon return of the troops, and this is something that for whatever reason I have glossed over and glossed over and glossed over and glossed over. And I always ascribe the error to Phineas and Hophni above all else, the two sons of Eli. Here's the error though. God showed this to me. In, ver- in chapter, th- or in verse three of four, of chapter four, if y'all are looking at it, upon return of the troops, the elders, the elders, everybody say, the elders. This is gonna provide some light for us, folks. It is did for me anyway. Maybe y'all are ahead of me. It didn't say, huh? We're in First uh, Samuel chapter 4, verse 3. Upon return of the troops, after this defeat, the elders, the leaders of the nation, folks, 
The one where the buck really stopped in terms of where the nation was going to go and what decisions they were going to make. The elders questioned why God allowed them to be defeated. Do you all see that? Are you looking at the scripture? I want to make sure your eyes are seeing the same thing I mine saw. The elders questioned why God allowed them to be defeated. How, God, could you allow us to be routed by these uncircumcised people? So then what they did was they decided to leverage God. They decided to, to, to under their own decision, their own agenda, their own purpose and for their own goals, m- grab the power of the living God and leverage it on their behalf. And how did, how were they going to do that? Let's go get the ark, folks, and bring it out in our midst, and we will win. That's the Greg version. But let me tell you what, folks, they didn't, they didn't conceive of that because they had high esteem for the Lord's presence. They conceived of that because they had seen the miracles that God had done for them before, and they were trying to leverage that power from a soulish and physical perspective and not one of honor and seeking out the counsel of God, first and foremost, and His plan and purpose in the, in the matter. And most importantly, then not going and having the high priest who was in charge of the, of the ark itself and having, and seeking his counsel to say what, what really should be done. They just said, boys, send a detail up to the tabernacle or where, wherever the, the thing was at and you go bring the ark back down here. Down, and I'm saying the elders did this. The elders. So. They questioned why God. And so I've got a statement here. It came by the Holy Spirit. Be careful, leaders. Be careful. Be careful. We have to be careful, Cornell. We have to be careful, Ken. We have to be careful with the presence of the living God, with His power. We have to be careful that any time we're making decisions that have to do with where this body is going to go and what we're going to do, what is the motive? What are we desiring in this and how, how is it that perhaps we are by our own desire prying out and using the power of the living God's presence to do something that we desire over instead of seeking out the counsel of God and letting him manifest the power through us as we walk it out. You see what I'm saying? It's a huge difference. Be careful, leaders. And then in verses 4 through 11, the men, the detail that the elders sent, they go to retrieve the ark and the priests allow it to be taken. Oh, dear God. The priest of the living God. I'm talking about the people for generations that were the only, that even only just a chosen select of those people could even go even before the presence of the ark. And one time a year, those same people had such a dishonor and the, the, the absolute esteem and honor of what that ark represented in terms of the presence of the God with the people had so fallen to the place that the priest didn't even consider the answer no in the process. That the priests weren't even in a place to say, what are you boys doing? You can't even go in there. You guys are idiots. You'll be consumed. Well, that, that, that reality had gone a long time ago, according to Scripture. That reality had gone a long time ago, and so had the power of the presence of God in their midst. You see how esteem and honor of God is such a big deal? Huge deal. It can cost us the anointing. It can cost us the presence of God. Men go to retrieve the ark, verses 4 through 11, and the priests allow it to be taken. And my heart just, just almost breaks when I say that. And then, if that's not enough, 
The priests even escort the ark out of the tabernacle into the presence of the people to be used the way it was used. So it's not enough that the priest allowed the detail to come in and take the ark of the living God. They actually escorted out. Phineas and Hophni, the two sons who were wicked, the scripture says. And they allow it to be taken. They even escort it to the battlefield. Israel suffers great defeat. And the ark is captured. Oh, dear Lord. Oh, dear Lord. The ark is captured. Then in chapter 4, verses 12 through 22, you see the chronicle of the death of Eli and the birth of Ichabod. And so we see this event punctuated with the birth by, by Phineas's wife of a child who she named before she died. A name that means the glory departed. Ichabod. And I've used that phrase before. Well, just write Ichabod over this. In other words, the glory's departed from this deal. Just put Ichabod on it, man, because the glory's departed. It's kind of an old phrase that some people, you know, might use in religious circles. Well, that's where it comes from because of this woman named this guy Ichabod. I don't know about you, but I don't ever name your child Ichabod. If you're ever thinking about that or have grand or have uh, sons or daughters think about naming their kids, tell them, well, you can name a lot of things. Make sure you don't name them Ichabod. <laughs> that's a weird name. I don't think anybody would use it, but they did back in, you know, not too long ago. Some people did. Oh my goodness. And then we see, we come up to 1 Samuel chapter 5, and I'm going to stop here and leave you hanging on the cliff. Because this is a very important part of what we're building up to, and that is talking about the tabernacle of David and the result of what happens whenever. But we've got to frame it with why that's come, come about. And, and you're going to see when you read chapter 5, what happens to the ark after it gets taken and captive, captured by the enemy? And you're going to see what happens to them. <laughs> the great hemorrhoids. <laughs> the pain in the rear. Like, such as they've never known before. My goodness. It's awesome. It's awesome, man. I mean, I mean, it, it, on the one hand, it, I mean, I find myself as I go through this, I start crying. And then on the other hand, I start laughing and then I start shouting, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's one of those kind of novels, you know, all right, praise the Lord. We're going to stop here and then we'll pick up from there. So everybody read uh first Samuel's uh, chapters one through five. Okay. And then of course, behind this story, we see the story of a wonderful person. His name is Samuel. Oh my goodness. What a man. What a man of God. What a man of God. And you know, I'm just going to drop this little note in, in here, this little rabbit trail, but it's a punctuation really on the whole concept of honor. Samuel is a fruit of the honor of Hannah, his mother, in a vacuum of dishonor. There was an absolute vacuum of dishonor in Eli's priesthood. But yet the word of the living God came through that man that brought a prophetic utterance to allow some or to, to deliver a concept of reality and miracle unto Hannah who esteemed God with all her might. Isn't that awesome? So even in the middle of the desert, a stream can flow, folks. Hallelujah. All right, praise God. Father, we're just so grateful. We're so grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That your presence resides in us and it's not going to leave, oh God. It's not going to leave, oh God. You don't take your Holy Spirit from us, oh Lord. Hallelujah. We're so grateful, oh God, that he's come to reside for us for, you know, with us forever. But, oh, God, we do recognize that our, by the act of our will that we can null and void the power of that presence in our life, though it be in our midst, by not honoring or esteeming you above all things. God, help us 
Show us. Deliver us from that, Father, if that is the case in our lives. In any way, Father. God, I proclaim your truth, Father, in this. And I just ask, Holy Ghost, I thank you that you're just going to take it and you're just going to bring several and diverse revelation. Thank you for anointing these folks as they go through these chapters. Father, to deliver unto them an even greater revelation than what you've given me, O God. Thank you. Thank you for this, O God. We are like David. We desire one thing above all else, that we would dwell in your presence forever. Hallelujah. Thank you, O God. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. 